Krishna, welcome to our Sunday Bhagavatam class, October 27th, 2019, still San Diego. Uh, so let us begin. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So today we continue with Canto 1, Chapter Three, text twenty-eight. A very important verse. In fact, uh, Jiva Goswami, the great Jiva Goswami, and the other Vaishnavacharyas say that this is, the, in a sense, the most important verse in the Bhagavatam. And so we'll see why. <clears throat> So the verse is Ete Changsa Kala Bungsaha Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam Indari Vyakulam Lokam Radhyanti Yuge Yuge. So I'll give you a very literal translation. Ete means these, these avatars because we're concluding now the list of uh avatars we've had i think um 22 krishna uh ekona vingshe vingshatime krishna was 19 in this particular list uh, balaram was number 20 and then we had buddha and kalki so we've and of course there's a double Incarnation, Narayan. So the Bhagavatam has described 22 avatars. And um, then it says these. Actually, it says and these, Atecha. And these 20 avatars are Angsha Kala. The Angsha means parts. Parts. And Angsha can be. Uh, it can be a plenary part or a plenary expansion of the Lord, or it can be a jiva soul. As Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, um, that um, jiva bhuta sanatana maiva, my, uh, how does Krishna say it? Mamaivangsa jiva loke. Jiva bhuta sanatana. These eternal living beings are a part of me alone, mamaiva, angsha, jiva loke. So we are what is called the vibhinangsha, the separated or jiva souls. And uh, and then there's there are the plenary parts of Krishna. Still, here it says, and these are angshas and kalas. Kala means also a part. So uh, usually it's translated, uh, Prabhupada says, uh, portions and portions of the portions. Prabhupada translates Angsha, plenary portion, although some of the avatars in the list are not plenary portions, such as Narada Muni or Nara in Nara Narayan, Buddha, and so on. So these are expansions or parts of the Lord and parts of parts or secondary expansions. Pungsaha is very interesting. Pungsaha, which Prabhupada translates as of the Supreme, literally means of the person. And of course, it can mean of the Lord as Prabhupada translates for the Supreme, but 
literally of the person. And these are expansions, primary and secondary expansions of the person, the person. And then here's the line that the Acharyas have signaled or identified as perhaps the most important line in the Bhagavatam. Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam, but Krishna. Two means but or however. So these are all portions and expansions. However, Krishna is Bhagavan Swayam, the Lord himself. The Lord, or as Prabhupada puts it, Swayam, in, in person. In person. Uh, Bhagavan Swayam. Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. But Krishna is the Lord himself, personally the Lord. So that identifies that uh, as we sing from the Brahma Sangita, Govindam Adi Purusham Tamaham Vajami. I worship Govinda, the original person. Uh, so this understanding uh, is absolutely central to our Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition. And this is exactly what Lord Chaitanya emphasized, that Krishna is the original personality of God. And of course, this is exactly what Lord Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita when he says, Ahang Sarvasya Prabhava, I am the source of everything. Matak from me, Sarvam Pravartate, everything proceeds. Little grammar, the pro and proceeds, is Sanskrit pra, Pravartate proceeds. So for me, everything proceeds. Ahang Sarvasya Prabhava, I am the source of everything. So, uh, then the verse goes on to say, Indrari Vyakulam Lokam Radhyanti Yuge Yuge. Uh, when you repeat uh, certain words in Sanskrit, it means, like for example, Yada means when, Yada Yada, whenever. And so here we have Yuge, which would be in a Yuga, and then Yuge Yuge means in every yuga, in each succeeding yuga, yuga, yuga. So in each yuga, uh, these avatars, it, because in the first line, ite changsa kala pumsa, that these are, and these are uh, par, uh, portions or expansions and then secondary portions of the person of the Lord, but Krishna is the Lord himself, is Bhagavan himself. But now in the third line, we're going back to the plural. We're going back to all the avatars. So the third line is, and the third and fourth lines are again talking about all the avatars because it's in the plural. And in every yuga, uh, these avatars, <clears throat> mridiyanti, which Prabhupada says protect, uh, give protection to lokam, the world, uh, the universe, vyakulam, when it is disturbed, vyakulam means disturbed by indrari, the indra ari, the enemies of indra. Just like Krishna is called murari, the enemy of the demon mura. So ari, in, indra ari, indrari means the enemies of indra. Those who would disturb the universe, those who 
uh, rebel against or fight against the universal order of dharma, justice, and, and peace. And those who fight against it, rebel against it, they're called Indrari and Vyakulam. They disturb the world, Indrari, Vyakulam, Lokam. And then Krishna, actually all these avatars protect the world. Uh, the word Mridiyanti, this verb Mridiyanti, is interesting. So I thought I'd give you, uh, because it has a range of meanings. If you hear what the meanings are, you get a sense of what the verb is. So Mridiyanti uh, also means uh, to give grace to, to be favorable, to pardon, to save, to treat kindly, to make happy, to give pleasure to, to delight. So it's a very beautiful word here that uh, these avatars show kindness to the world when it's disturbed by the enemies of Indra. It brings joy to the world, like in that song, Joy to the World. Uh, these avatars show grace and favor uh, to and protect the universe, the world, when it's disturbed by the demonic. So that is text 28. Then the next verse, 29, says, Janmaguhyam Bhagavato Yaitat Prayato Naraha Sayam Prater Grinan Bhaktya Dukha Gramat Vimuchate. That um, one who, um, where did the verb go here? Grinan. So those who, uh, night and day, Sayam Prater. Those who night and day, uh, with devotion, bhaktiya, uh, are reciting this mysterious birth, this uh, janma, of course, this birth, and guhyam, confidential or secret or, or mysterious. So one who, or those who, Actually, it says one who, it's singular. One who uh, night and day is reciting this mysterious, mysterious in the sense that you can't understand it if you're a materialist. You can't just, you know, I don't know, apply mundane science to it. Mundane science, of course, which requires you to control things, to study them. And you can't control Krishna and his birth, so forget that process. So if somehow or other by hearing from authorities about something much greater than you, because that's how you hear about something much greater than you, beyond your powers, you have to hear about it from someone who is greater than you. Just like in a, in a university or any school, starting with the you know, elementary school, supposedly, theoretically, the teacher knows more than the student. And that's how the student learns by hearing from someone who knows more. So uh, one who is reciting in this authorized way the mysterious birth of the Lord and one who does so uh, in a disciplined, careful way, prayataha, 
prayataha, I won't go into all the grammar of that word, but it means in a disciplined, serious way. So a person that does that, night and day, sayam prater, uh, with devotion, dukkha grama, from all suffering, uh, vimuchate, is liberated. Janmaguyam bhagavato yaitat prayato naraha sayam prater granan bhaktya dukkha gramat vimuchate. So Prabhupada, uh, Prabhupada's translation is, whoever carefully recites the mysterious appearance of the Lord with devotion in the morning and in the evening gets relief from all miseries of life. And I'll read Prabhupada's purport. In the Bhagavad Gita, the personality of Godhead has declared that anyone who knows the principles of the transcendental birth and activities of the Lord will go back to Godhead. Janma, and Prabhupada is, of course, referring to the verse in chapter 4, Janma karma cha me divyam evam joveti tattvataha tattva deham, giving up your body, punar janma naiti mameti sarjana. So anyone who knows the principles of the transcendental birth and activities of the Lord will go back to God after being relieved from this material tabernacle. So simply knowing factually the mysterious way of the Lord's incarnation in this material world can liberate one from material bondage. And of course, knowing the Lord's incarnation, the Prabhupada says the mysterious way of the Lord's incarnation also means knowing that Krishna is the origin of all these avatars. Therefore, the birth and activities of the Lord are manifested by him for the welfare of the people in general, uh, as manifested by him for the welfare of the people of the world, are not ordinary. They are mysterious, and only one who carefully tries to go deep into the matter by spiritual devotion can enter into the mystery and thus be relieved of all miseries of life. In other words, one gets liberation from material bondage. It is therefore advised that one who simply recites with sincerity and devotion this chapter of the Bhagavatam describing the Lord's appearance in different incarnations can have insight into the birth and activities of the Lord. The very word vimukti or liberation, actually in the verse we have the verb from that same word vimuchate, which means is liberated and here Prabhupada says the very word vimukti liberation indicates the Lord that the Lord's birth and activities are all transcendental otherwise simply by reciting them one could not attain liberation you can't just you know recite a mundane book and be liberated they uh, these <coughs> appearances birth and activities are therefore mysterious and those who do not follow the prescribed regulations of devotional service are not entitled to enter into the mysteries of his births and activities. So, of course, nowadays, uh, you know, so many people feel entitled to so many things, uh, but they're not entitled to Krishna consciousness unless they practice it. So, the next verse says, this is a bit uh, esoteric,
This is interesting. So, uh, Prabhupada's translation is the conceptions or the conception of the Virat, the universal form, the universe is God's body. The conception of the Virat, universal form of the Lord in the material world, is imaginary. It is to enable the less intelligent and neophytes to adjust to the idea of the Lord's having form. But factually, the Lord has no material form. So the Sanskrit literally says, Rupam, this form, Bhagavato, of the Lord, this form of the Lord, Hiyarupasya, this form of the Lord, who indeed has no form. Clearly a paradox. Paradox means an apparent contradiction that forces you to uh, think. It's like a literary speed bump, you know, force you to slow down. So what does this mean? Itarupam Bhagavato. Bhagavato means of the Lord. So this form of the Lord who has no form, who is Chidatmanaha, who is a person, uh, the Prabhupada says of the transcendence, Chit means consciousness. So it literally means of a soul who is consciousness. Just as we, our pure souls, are consciousness. Or consciousness is a symptom. So of the Chidatma, of the Lord who is the soul of consciousness. Maya gunair virachitam. So etad rupam, this form of the Lord who has no form, because he's simply the consciousness soul. This form is virachitam, made of, fabricated of, manufactured or built of virachitam. Maya gunair, it's built with the modes of maya, the gunas of maya, uh, illusion, illusory qualities namely material goodness, passion, and ignorance. These are called mayaguna here, illusory qualities because they're not the true qualities of the soul or the supreme soul God. So this form, so there is a form of the Lord who has no form. There's a form of the formless Lord who has no material form. Of course, I should mention it has no material form, which is built of uh, the qualities of maya. Mahadadivir, and these qualities of Maya are uh, in the Mahatattva, etc. So this whole big uh, box of materials, this huge warehouse of materials called the Mahatattva, it's like the supreme warehouse, the supreme storage facility, you could say. All these gunas and all these material elements, so the the, the Virat form of the Lord is built of all those materials and it's imaginary because the Lord has no material form and uh, all this exists within Krishna as we know Mahavishnu uh, all the material elements come are stored within Mahavishnu so that's all in the self so this verse is a bit uh, so an example is going to be given. And the reason an example is being given in the next verse is because the Bhagavatam understands that this is a bit subtle and complex. So having given this information about the universal form, 
which is imaginary whenever you imagine the universe as the body of God, basically. But the real body of God is spiritual. It's not made of any material elements. So an example is given here. An example to help you understand it. Yata nabasi megaogho reinurva partivo nile evam drashtari drishitvam aropitam avudhibi. Very interesting. So yata, just as, introducing a metaphor or an analogy, just as. Navasi, uh, in space. Navas can mean the sky. It's translated here by prophet in the sky or space because the sky is space. And you have to understand here that in this Bhagavatam understanding, uh, the sky is, does, does not mean air. It's not the atmosphere. We know that the sky is filled with air. Unfortunately, on Earth, it's oxygen and we can breathe it. And of course, the higher you go, or technically the farther you go from the Earth, the, you know, the higher you go in the Earth's atmosphere, the thinner the air gets. So that, for example, uh, La Paz, Bolivia, which is uh, very high, I don't know, roughly uh, 10,000 feet above sea level. Uh, actually, I'll tell you exactly what the altitude is. It's, whoa, I, it's 12,000 feet, which would be about 4,000 meters. So people, it's funny, because the, the airport is above the city, which is amazing. So in the La Paz, Bolivia airport, they have facilities for people that can't breathe. So if you fly into La Paz and you can't breathe because the airport's maybe 13 or 14,000 feet up, then they come in with an oxygen kit because some people can't breathe. In fact, there was a joke saying that La Paz, that Bolivia has the best soccer team in the world as long as they play in La Paz because no one else can breathe there. So anyway, uh, so the higher you go, the thinner the air becomes, and then ultimately you go beyond the Earth's atmosphere, you are in space where you absolutely cannot breathe because there's no oxygen, there's no air. So we're talking about space itself, not air. Not air, not the air we breathe, but just space. You have to understand that. And by the way, Krishna uses the same example in chapter nine of the Gita. So, yata nabasi, just as in space or in the sky, megaoko, there is a mega oga, there's a mass of clouds. Just as there's a mass of clouds in the sky, uh, or va means, or another analogy is, renur va parti vo anile, or uh, in air, anila means air, uh, there are earthly particles. So basically what's going on here is that in this scheme of eight elements going from gross to subtle, bhumir, apu, and alovayu, so earth, water, uh, bhumir, apu, fire, air, and sky, actually five, leave out the cognitive elements, but in the five, these are called the maha, pancha maha bhutani, the five 
great elements in the sense of gross material elements, gross elements. And so they go from gross to subtle, earth, water. I mean, earth has a fixed form. Water is fluid, obviously. And then when you go to fire, uh, it's even less solid than water. You can float in water. You, you don't float in fire. Don't even try it. Because water can actually hold you up because it's still more solid. Fire will not hold you up. And air, you just, of course, you drop like a rock. And then there's space. So the idea is that when a more gross element is in a more subtle element, you may believe falsely that the subtle element has taken on some gross qualities. Like, for example, when you see clouds in the sky, and then you say, as Prabhupada explains, the purple, the sky is cloudy. Now, if by sky we mean space itself, the element sky, not just in sort of in a normal human or poetic sense, the sky is cloudy. But if you're speaking technically in terms of this Vedic science, then the sky is never cloudy because clouds do not interact with the sky. And this is, again, same example Krishna will give in chapter 9 of the Gita to explain himself. So, the, so we say the sky is cloudy, but it's not. It's a pure element space. It's more subtle than the clouds and therefore isn't actually touching them, even though it contains them. Probably in the purport says, uh, less intelligent person say the sky is cloudy or the air is dirty. The next example is uh, Parthiva, uh, mean, Prithvi, uh, priti, prithivi means the earth, like prithivi teache jata, from the word prithu, as in the avatar prithu, which means like very wide. And so prithivi literally means the wide earth, the wide earth. And so part from the word prithivi, partiva means made of earth. From prithivi, partiva, made of earth. So, uh, or the, so, so, Rainur, a particle, we see a particle made of earth, like dust, or some kind of, you know, some kind of dust particle. Anile in uh, the air. And so just as we may think sky is cloudy, even though sky and cloud don't interact, we may think that air is dusty, but in fact, the dust is a separate element from the air. So, so these are the two examples that we, in our mind, then the, then the, now, now let, let me read the next verse. So it starts out saying jata, just as, va, or just as something else. In other words, two analogies. Eva, thus. So now we're going to find out what the conclusion is of this analogy. Eva, drashtari, drishyatvam, Aropitam abudipi. It's very interesting. Thus, in the seer, drashtari means literally in the seer, drishyatvam, the quality of being seen, of being visible. Uh, aropitam is imposed, imposed in the sense that it's not really true. But in your mind, you're forcing something in your mind or believing something which is not really there. So it is imposed, abudhi by those who 
literally have no intelligence. So, um, by the way, this matches wonderfully one of the main, uh, you could say, philosophical points of the modern world. And that is when they say, don't objectify me or don't objectify someone. Now, to objectify someone in the modern negative sense doesn't mean to see them objectively. That's not what they're talking about. It's the opposite. It's the idea that, and this is exactly what the Bhagavatam is saying, by the way, that we are seers. In other words, we are subjects. We are subjects, uh, people who perceive. I mean, just very quickly in the dictionary, a subject is a person who is the, uh, actually it's a poor definition, which doesn't surprise me, since it is the, uh, yeah, it's the Apple Dictionary, which is pretty terrible. Okay, wait, no, actually they got it right. Here's in philosophy, in philosophy to be a subject is to be a thinking or feeling entity, to be a conscious entity, especially as opposed to anything external to the mind. So let's say someone, well, they don't really see you, but they think they see you because they see your body. They see, now actually you are not the body. In other words, you are not the object of their consciousness. You are the seat of, the center of your own consciousness. Therefore, you are a subject because you are conscious. You're not, the, you're not ultimately the object of someone else's consciousness. I mean, think of lust. Someone sees someone else and lusts after them. And so, actually, they lust after that body. That means they don't understand that you are not the body. You are the person in the body who is just as conscious as that other person. And so they're seeing you as an object when, in fact, you're a subject. And that's exactly what the Bhagavatam is talking about. Avam, thus, drushtari in the seer, which is just the Bhagavatam's way of saying the subject, the conscious person. In the seer, those who have no intelligence impose a status or a state of being that which is seen. So you are not ultimately that which is seen in the material world. You are the seer. Now, of course, people, when they identify their bodies, they objectify themselves in that sense. For example, someone dresses up or puts on makeup and tries to make themselves sexy, which is, in other words, trying to animalize themselves. Uh, so, in other words, someone wants to be an object. I want to be an object. Well, not I. Someone wants to be the object of another person's consciousness. That's kind of a stupid thing to do in the material sense. Uh, the idea is you are consciousness. You are a conscious being. You should be expanding, developing your consciousness. Instead, you want, I mean, out of pure vanity, out of just stupid vanity, a person wants to become a physical object. I mean, that is very unintelligent. If you are an eternal conscious being, part of God, and yet you want to transform yourself 
into a physical object, a dying physical object. So on goes the makeup and or, you know, dressing like this and dressing like that and very selectively exposing certain parts of the body. And or, I mean, you know, men and women, they each have their way of being stupid. Uh, stupidity is certainly not unique to one gender. It is equally shared by both genders. They have equal capacity to be idiots. And therefore, in Sanskrit, uh, the word for sexuality or sexual attraction is maitunya from the word mitta, which literally means mutuality, mutual. So there's no use wasting time, you know. Is it the women? Is it the woman, the seductress? Is it the man, the seducer? You know, who's really behind all this degradation? Well, the Bhagavatam explains it I mean, very clearly. It's mutual. It's equal shared stupidity of people who are eternal souls uh, trying to transform themselves into dying physical objects just to satisfy an extremely misguided sense of vanity. So, so getting back to the list of avatars, um, if we think, here's what the Bhagavatam is telling us in this specific, I mean, it's telling us a lot about ourselves, but also in the context of avatars, the Bhagavatam is telling us that uh, if we think the universal form is actually Krishna or God, or if we think in general that Krishna has a material body when he comes to the world, then we are falling into this fundamental category mistake. Krishna is the supreme seer. Krishna is, he sees everything. And if we impose in our mind, you can't impose really, but in, in your own mind, you have the power to bewilder yourself, not to change reality. Um, if we impose upon Krishna, the omniscient seer, the quality of being seen, in other words, if we in our mind impose upon God a material body, thinking that God has a material body, uh, then, of course, we've made a huge mistake. And this is done by who? By those who have no intelligence. Abudhibi. Budhi means intelligence, reason, rational capacity. And those who just ain't got it, those who just don't have that ability to reason properly, they're called abudhi. So... Having given all the avatars and explained that Krishna is the origin of all the avatars, the God himself, the Lord himself, now uh, material forms of God are explained to be imaginary. That's not really the body of God. So I will stop here for today. I'm just going to quickly check the Facebook page here and see if there are any questions let's see uh, thank you for all your greetings okay here's a question oh from Anna Sophia so you were talking about Krishna's form and I was wondering how do you see Krishna when you see him in what form well those of us who are in the Hare Krishna movement 
we always want to see Krishna as Krishna. I admit that personally, I am really focused on Krishna. Uh, that's the form of Krishna that I always want to see and remember. Uh, okay, here's a question. I was wondering about Madri entering the fire, Sati ceremony. After Pandu's departure, we know they just had an intimate relation before this. My question, why she entered the fire? How could she know that she was not pregnant? That's an interesting question. We read that Timmy's a great personality, never going to be. Well, first of all, she couldn't be pregnant because she didn't actually have intimate relations with him when he embraced her, according to what the Bhagavatam literally says. When he embraced her, uh, that's when he died. So she knew she was not pregnant. Um, how do you explain eternal everyday life in the spiritual world? Eternally young, no disease. I would assume no time exists as we know it. This is from Daniel Solomon. Here in the material kingdom, as we know it here in the material kingdom, a spiritual body, I assume, associating with Christian everyday is ecstatic. Could you explain that? Well, yes, yeah, just your sort of your daily bliss with Krishna. Uh, the spiritual world is not disappointing. It's not like, whoops, we forgot about, we, we forgot something or it's, I mean, they, they actually know what they're doing up there. They're very intelligent. Krishna is very bright. And so when you go to the spiritual world, you'll find they, I mean, to put it simply, they, they just know how to do it right. And uh, you'll be happy. You won't want your money back. So here's a question. Uh, how can one be liberated from any unfavorable behaviors that can lead one from falling out of grace with Krishna? I would suggest uh, practicing bhakti yoga, Krishna consciousness, as taught by Prabhupada. Uh, so is it that uh, the real work we have to do is with ourselves? Yes, but I've discovered very early in my spiritual life, like, after I'd been in the temple about a week, that um, the more I tried to help others, the more Krishna was helping me. So, uh, let's see. Oh, from Megan, how does one gain the ability to prevent the mind from bewildering itself? Well, as Prabhupada said, we have to um, keep the mind busy in spiritual activities. Idle mind is a devil's workshop as Prabhupada used to quote all the time. And so some of these old proverbs really uh, explain Krishna consciousness. We should try to keep ourselves busy in Krishna consciousness, which means, for example, let's say someone has a job or they're working or taking care of a family, you know, and that there's so much you have to do to take care of a family. So whatever we do, we should meditate that we're doing it for Krishna. And uh, somehow or other we have to bring, it's not that we have to, give up our normal life, assuming we just have normal duties, but we have to bring Krishna into the life. In other words, invite Krishna to participate in everything you do. Uh, even though our practices and readings, yeah, you're right, Maya is very clever, she's really good at what she does. And so um, we have to just keep trying, we're not gonna, we're not perfect yet, but we just keep trying. You know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Therefore it's called the practice of bhakti yoga. We should constantly be practicing to bring Krishna into every aspect of our life. There's no time in the spiritual world, and yet we hear descriptions of day-night phases. Can you explain this? I think I can. Um, 
why do we, how should I put it? What gives us a sense of past, present, and future? What psychologically or ontologically, what causes us to experience something that we call past, present, and future? It's very simple because some things are lost. Like for example, yesterday is gone. And so the exact situation of the world yesterday is gone forever or not to speak of a year ago, 10 years ago, 100,000 years ago. So because things are lost, we have a sense of past. Literally, it has passed. It is, it's gone. And future, we have a sense of future because there's something that we know is coming or we're going to it. It's funny, we, being sort of self-centered, we say it's coming to us, or we could say we're going to it, to the future. But actually, uh, in the spiritual world, nothing is lost and there's nothing which is not present. And so there's no sense of uh, past and future, but you could say that sounds very boring. No, because there's variety, but there's a kind of variety which doesn't involve something which wasn't there. It's, um, it's a sort of timelessness. Just to give a mundane example, which has been given by the Acharya, so don't blame me for this. Imagine when you fall in love. When you fall in love, uh there's a sense of timelessness for example you can be with the person you've just fallen in love with and you can be taking a walk somewhere and suddenly realize oh my god you know it's it's three hours later i'm late for this or i forgot about that so when you're absorbed in loving relationships time you really lose your sense of time and that's just an analogy to imagine the spiritual world Oh, uh, Kravanti says, my grandson, Ananda, seven years old, is listening too. He asks, how does Lord Krishna see us? Well, thank you for your question, Ananda. Thank you for listening. Um, first of all, we can see because we're part of God. I mean, if you ask a simple question, how is it that we have the power to see anything? Which is an amazing power. I mean, imagine a universe in which no one could see and no one could even imagine seeing. Right? If you were born in a world where there was no such thing as vision, but so we're so blessed, we're so lucky that, that we can see. So if you ask, why can we see? Because we're part of Krishna. Because we're part of Krishna has made us. And therefore, um, and Krishna can see unlimitedly. Krishna can see everything. So how does he see us? He sees us as we really are. He sees that we are pure souls inside a body but that we tend to forget that we're pure souls and we often think that I am the body. And so Krishna sees this and he's helping us to wake up and to realize who we really are. So that's how Krishna sees us as pure souls that need a little help. Uh, okay, that's it. Thank you all very much. Thank you all for listening. It's a pleasure to be able to... Uh, speak to you all in this way. I wish you a happy week and I hope I'll see you all next Sunday. Hare Krishna.